Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We now speak to one of the truly great voices and important voices of the meetings of the World Economic Forum, and that is Ray Dalio. You may know him among any other things, including someone who's given generously in interview time uh, to Bloomberg Surveillance, but far more uh, for running and investing money uh, over the years in all different conditions and, of course, strapping it over from Bridgewater to an analysis of economics. I want to get to that in a moment. Ray Dalio, uh, Dalio good morning. Thank you for being with us. How was the year for Bridgewater? Can you can you say, given the cacophony out there, the systemic risk, the challenges of Epsilon, can you go into this year with a momentum? Well, last year we're uh, up. Uh, depending on the count, somewhere between uh, a couple of percent and about 12 percent. It was a, a lot not, better not, than others. Well, that's not <laughs> the best point of comparison. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. it, was, it was a so-so year. Let's get to the panel. Francine Lacroix holding court as you and uh, any number of people disagreed. Uh, you know, I say, folks, the elite meet degree. Well, that didn't happen with Ray Dalio. It's your panel. Uh, Professor Summers talks about a time of economic creationism, the new economics of the president-elect. Where do you and Mr. Summers disagree most in America's economics? Um, I think it's about populism. Um the, the possibility that this can be effective, the possibility of bringing about uh, economic revitalization, business. It's okay to make a lot of money uh, by bringing in businesses from other countries. I think the United States, there's a lot of positives in this. I think the big question is whether it'll be well navigated. Uh, there's a mm. populism going on. So let's, let's label this around the world as a phenomenon called populism. It exists in Brexit. It existed in the 30s. We have to understand what it is. It represents a population that needs to be represented. The question is whether it's done intelligently or not intelligently. In other words, the revitalization of, of, of making money. So I'm, I, I think that this could be very good. It'll stimulate growth. Where the growth, where there was a malaise in growth before, the question is whether it's done thoughtfully and intelligently. Whether, right. This is going to require an engineering exercise. I, I, I love that idea. This, of course, uh, comes from your, uh, you know, your middle class upbringing. I guess I would call it within uh, Long Island years ago. Within that, Ray Dalio, and within the need for engineering, is the idea that we get a front loaded benefit that dissipates one year out or three year out. Is that a tangible risk? I think that this could be sustained or it could be nothing depending on how it is. Let me tell you what I think it is. I think we're in a period that's very similar to 1980 transition mm -hmm. between the left and the right, um, between uh, more government and less government. 
Um, it was a time when uh, Ronald Reagan, it would be more like supply-side economics. It was a period that's quite like that, but different in that we don't have the capacity, upward capacity to grow in the same way because we were in a deep recession then, mm -hmm. and we don't have the capacity to lower interest rates. So the new growth that could take place by uh, new investment and new animal spirits um, has to be very well engineered to find out where the capacity lies to, to invent, invest correctly to make this, to pull this off is going to require right. engineering. And I think the real question will be that whether there's the skill and the patience to engineer a unique recovery when the economy is right. where it is. Let's bring in David Gura in New York City. David Gura this morning with Ray Dalio in Davos. Did you have a better sense of what the blueprint is going to look like? You've written about uh, trying to understand how the, the levers will be moved and, and what the outcome of moving them is likely to produce. You wrote that shortly after the, the U.S. presidential election. Are we any closer to getting a sense of, of what that engineering mechanism is going to look like? I think we know all the broad senses, and I don't think we know any of the details. When, when and you, I think you the, go ahead. Like the devil is in the details. I mean, I think we know that there's going to be um, more protectionism, more uh, capital investment, more tax benefits for companies more changes in tax rates. We know that there's going to be uh, a lot of things. Uh, but we don't know how uh, it's going to be paid for or how it's where the capacity is going to exist with the tightness in capacity. We don't know how it's going to be financed. We don't know even how those decisions are going to be made. We don't know the particular people and their interactions. We don't know a lot. We don't know what, most importantly, I think we know that Donald Trump um, is a businessman, an aggressive businessman, and what we don't know is whether he's going to be aggressive and thoughtful or aggressive and reckless. This is going to be, require a surgery, uh, and whether there's good surgeons and executing this well to pull off the sort of uh, environment that we had from 1980 to 1985 when Ronald Reagan came in is going to require skill, talent. We don't know yet how that'll work. Again, I draw back to uh, to what you wrote after the election. You said that the, the craziness factor may have been overestimated when it comes to, to Donald Trump. He might be a less erratic leader than, than many feared. Uh, now, a few years, a few months hence, do you feel do you feel the same way? You see the tweets as, as we do every morning here. Uh, do you get the sense that, that he's changing as a leader? I think he's chosen people around him who are, by and large, thoughtful, respectable, intelligent people. Um, I think that's telling. And again, I think that we don't know how those interactions are going to be. That's the uncertainty that's out there. Has Bridgewater had to adjust its investment stance? Because within my theme, we're living within uncertainty amid an uncertainty. How do you deal with it day to day? I think the important thing is to know what you know and know, know what you don't know. Most of my success has come from not me knowing what I don't mm -hmm. know and how to deal with it. So we've been basically trying to be neutral to this whole thing. So we've been positioned pretty neutrally. In other words, there's a way to diversify yourself away from this. Yeah, I don't want yeah. to take bets on on this right yeah. now. Ray Dalio, thank you so much. With Bridgewater this morning uh, with us here at the meetings of the World Economic Forum in Davos.
David Gurr in New York. I'm Tom Keen in Davos, Switzerland. The meetings of the World Economic Forum, and now a quick annual visit with Michael Porter of Harvard University. He took aerospace and mechanical engineering degrees at a school in New Jersey a few years ago, and of course held court at Harvard Business School. Uh, you came out of a school in New Jersey, darkened the door in Cambridge, and your acclaimed professor sent you a note and said, Mr. Porter... Join the conversation. Speak up, young Porter. Is there too much conversation nowadays? Do we have a president-elect who's just perhaps talking a little too much? Well, Tom, I, I, I hesitate to judge whether it's too much or too little. I think it's the wrong kind of conversation. It's the wrong tone of conversation. Uh, I think uh, the president uh, is going to have to learn how to be a leader, um, and leaders inspire. Uh, leaders uh, uh, bring together, not divide. Uh, leaders build confidence in the future, mm -hmm. not fear. Uh, leaders uh, uh, also think about people as human beings and neighbors that are going to uh, coexist together over time. And uh, uh, you know, we have a, a we have a program that we do for major company CEOs at Harvard. It's a boot camp, and and we talk a lot about what makes an effective leader and. Uh, we, uh, one of the poignant moments in that program is we, uh, it, it, we go back to Aristotle, and it, and it turns out that the Greeks' uh, society was the first society in history where actually leaders had to, had to motivate people and bring them along. Right, right. Before that, it was all power and military and yeah, birth. Sparta and all that. And all that. Right, yeah. exactly. And um, great communication and great leadership is the combination of three things. One is logic or what they call logos. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you got to be logical. It's got to make sense. Uh, all, and, and frankly, we stretch that in today's society. A lot of this stuff actually isn't logical, but most citizens really don't understand it isn't. The second thing that great leaders have is, is in a sense of emotion. There's an emotion of, of, of hope and opportunity and a little bit of nervousness. And, but, but you can't have too much fear. Uh, you have to have some sense of hope and opportunity. You've got to put those two together. Right. And, and then third, and the most important of all, is, uh, is what's called ethos, values. The great leaders get across values that people aspire to and want to be part of. And can, I, I think the conversation now is missing the point. Can this administration take Porter 101, which we just heard, thank you for laying it out so nicely, and retain their core American audience that wants an angry populism right now? How do you do both? I don't, I don't, I, I kind of reject the idea that, that, that America wants angry populism. Uh, I, I think America has been taught uh, to want angry populism, that's the political discourse that we've evolved uh, and, and it's grown and grown over mm -hmm. the last 10 or 20 years. We've been taught that to get something you want, you have to punish or dismiss what somebody else wants. Uh, we're looking at almost every issue in society in a simplistic way. It's not that we want trade or we don't want trade. You know, we, we want the, the nice combination of the good parts of trade, but we want to get away from the best right. parts of trade. Uh, it's not that we want, you know, small government or big government. We, we want an interesting combination of getting government in the right place at the right time with the right resources, focusing on the right things. So I, I think what's happened is we've, we've had a societal discourse that's been, I think, led by our political process that has educated people 
that that populism has any legitimacy. I mean, I think in America we were the uniquely the country where people got along. Yeah. Let me bring in my colleague, David Gurr, in New York City. David? Yeah, very quickly here. I wonder if the, the mores of how we regard leadership stand to change here with Donald Trump in office. I think of how carefully executives cultivate their social media presence and profiles, and we see what uh, the president-elect is doing. Do you think that's going to perhaps liberate executives in some way? The expectations will change that they'll have to be seen as more straight shooters than they have been? Well, I think that that's a, a very hopeful, positive uh, interpretation, and I do believe that all leaders of complex uh, enterprise or complex uh, societies uh, have to now communicate in more ways than they, they did historically. Um, you know, that said, um, I think that the, 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 the fundamental uh, uh, problem that the Trump administration has is um, they, they have to ultimately be perceived as uh, a an administration for America and for a good society and for a better place to live and for a better place to work and raise your kids and a society where everybody's yelling at each other and thinks the other guy's the enemy down the street is not a good society no. that ultimately is going to motivate and and uh, and succeed. We would be honored to speak to you again at 100 days of this new administration because if I know one message from this valley, nobody knows where we're going to be in 100 days. Absolutely. A wide set of opinions. Michael Porter of Harvard Business School, I can't say the benefit he has created over the years here. Boy, have I been looking forward to this, as has Mr. Gurra in New York. He is a four-star admiral of the U.S. Navy. He is out of the Fletcher School, Tufts University. But far more than that, he served a tour of duty for four years uh, with NATO. James Trevitas has given us so much value in the recent years, and he joins us here in Davos. Admiral, when you NATO to me is a concept to most of our listeners when you where do you walk into NATO? When you walk in the door, is it in Brussels? <laughs> uh, the NATO political headquarters is in Brussels, Tom. And what you would think of as the Pentagon of the NATO is about an hour south in a small town called Mons. That axis from Brussels to Mons is the heart of NATO. So you get appointed as is is the leader, the commander of NATO. The brass is shined. What happens when you walk in the door? Is an American running NATO? As the Supreme Allied Commander, you ought to remember you are an American, but your deputy is a Brit. Your chief of staff is a German. Your deputy chief of staff is French. All 28 countries have senior positions across the alliance. So there's American leadership, but it's not American right. direction or American hegemony. What does Mr. Trump want? How do you synthesize the comments of the last 14 days? You've been out in the media, but I want you to say for the surveillance audience now, is NATO ancient? Is it an artifact? Not at all. And I spent about an hour with President-elect Trump in Trump Tower on December 8th, so just a few weeks ago. And I made the case, and I think he accepted it to a reasonable degree, that NATO is good return on investment, as Bloomberg listeners would think of it, as follows. U.S. spends $600 billion a year. China spends $150 billion a year. Russia spends $80 billion a year. But the rest of NATO, European NATO, Tom, spends $300 billion a year, more than Russia and China combined. We would not want to walk away and leave that money on the table. It's a good investment. 
Yesterday, the Vice President Joe Biden delivered a speech in Davos calling on the preservation of the liberal order, talking about the relationship between the U.S. and Europe, a very passionate speech about the importance of that relationship. Do you get the sense that we're going to hear the same kind of passion from this next administration? I think that's uh, not likely, but I do think there's a kind of a grudging respect by President Trump. He actually said to me, as he said at the tail end of his NATO is obsolete comments, that NATO is very important to the United States. He understands that, and I'll tell you who really understands it is General Jim Mattis, who is the new Secretary of Defense designee, assuming he's confirmed, he will be a very strong advocate for NATO. He's saying during his hearing, if we did not have NATO today, we'd need to create it, uh, I believe. Let me ask you about something we heard a few moments ago. Jonathan Bernstein, one of our uh, Bloomberg View commentators, talking about uh, how many jobs are yet to be filled in Washington, D.C. There have been reports of how in the national security space in particular, there are a lot of jobs that haven't been filled. How worried about that are you? How worried are you about how this transition has been proceeding, especially uh, when it comes to filling jobs in the Pentagon and the State Department and the National Security Council? I'd say I'm concerned, but I haven't quite hit the point of deep worry as yet. Let's give them about another month. If they don't start filling those second and third tier jobs, particularly at Defense, State, and the NSC staff, right. then I think it's time okay. to worry. Well, David, I want you to jump in here, but I've got to cut in and, and, and make this is such an important question. Do you have any indication that old line Republican foreign policy people want to work for this administration? I think they are willing to do so, and I think that may be part of what's at delay here is the Trump transition team is obviously cognizant of people who signed petitions, never Trump, uh, or if people were unsupportive of Trump but maybe didn't go as far as signing the petition, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a little bit more, I would say, internal vetting going on, Tom, and that's probably slowed it down a bit. I'm sure there's an old home quality to going to the World Economic Forum annual meeting. You're probably running into people that you knew from your tour of duty as the, the Supreme Allied Commander of, of NATO. What are they saying to you about the, the alliance there? You don't have to, to name names, but generally speaking, what's the tone, what's the temperature of their sense of, of, of the, the strength of that relationship right now? I would categorize it as very hopeful on the European side that we will see continued strong U.S. support in the alliance. And I did a panel here on the future of the transatlantic alliance, and the question was, is the alliance at a tipping point? And my answer is no, but we might be at a slipping point. In other words, I don't think it's going to fall over and collapse, but we need to be careful that it doesn't slip down in importance. We're all going to know more in about six months when we see the first set of policy positions that the new administration takes. I think a a theme to our conversations this week has been about the future of multilateralism. Uh, And I'll ask you, who's going to make the case for that going forward? I think you have a lot of people who are disillusioned with multilateralism. There is a tendency now to look more inward than we have uh, in the past. Who's going to take up the mantle? Who's going to make the case for multilateralism going forward? Well, I'm hoping despite some rhetoric coming out of Washington that the U.S. will continue to do that because it's fundamentally in our interest. But I think two other nations that come to mind, one in Europe and one in Asia, are Germany and Japan. And it's interesting to note that these are both not quite superpowers, but certainly uh, well-established players in the international field who are emerging into the geopolitical world. Both of those leaders, Shinzo Abe and Angela Merkel, talk a great deal about multilateralism. And then I don't think we can completely overlook President Xi, who came here and effectively signed up to multilateralism as the foundational piece of the world order. But critically, if he came here and addressed multilateralism, 
Can that be affected with a communist society? Well, that's the billion-dollar question, Tom. And I think that my own view is that China can be a multilateral actor, that they can participate in all of these international forums, despite having an internal political system that is uh, one of communist as a base philosophy. But we like to say in the United States, politics ends at the waterline. Perhaps that'll be the approach from China. Did it end at the waterline in Wisconsin and Maine? Mr. Trump was elected (laughs) by a body of people who are distrustful of domestic China in the application, I would suggest to Asia and particularly to the United States. I agree with all that. Mm. And in addition, there is enormous Middle East fatigue in the United States. So I think those are the twin pillars of challenge for the Trump administration. Mm. How do you square the circle with China without breaking the global economy with a trade war? And how do you take a leadership position in this very fractious Middle East despite enormous fatigue in our country? David, jump in here with one more question with Admiral Stavitas because I got a Navy question. (laughs) Just a quick question about this transition and how different it is from the ones that we've seen uh, in the past. You have a lot of positions that are going to go unfilled. We read the stories about how ambassadors are being pulled back. There's not going to be any continuity there until the replacements are found. Is there a risk there in having such a clean break? Do you understand why the president-elect is doing that? I think there is risk in the timing. Every president, every administration has every right to withdraw the old and in-place the new. But the sooner that happens in national security, the better, because the whole world is kind of waiting on pause. And the longer you wait, the greater the spread of risk. And now, Admiral Stravitas, it is a first on Bloomberg Surveillance, and we're honored that you're with us. He's out of uniform today, folks. He's styling in the Patagonia silver vest uh, in the bright pink tie. Uh, Admiral, have you ever visited with a Swiss Navy? They have, they have Aquarius-class patrol boats, Type 80, that are actually a serious flotilla of their lakes bordering other nations. I have been aboard the Swiss <laughs> Navy craft in Lake Geneva with uh, Lieutenant General Andre Blautmann, the chief yeah. of defense of Switzerland. I have nothing but admiration for the Swiss military. And here's another one, Tom. Please. Did you know that the Swiss military has a bicycle regiment? <laughs> they have some unique features. They rejected, they Tom. They rejected Tom for membership in that <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is from, from before World War II. There exactly. is a heritage here. It is. And as universal conscription, no. terrific. Admiral Stavitas, thank you so much for the clinic on the Swiss Navy. <laughs> Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Uh, It is an important interview in Davos with someone from Lafayette, Indiana, who demanded he would not come on surveillance till the Cubs won the World Series. So finally, (laughs) we welcome Christopher Eisgruber. He is the 20th president of a college in New Jersey called Princeton University and all celebrated upon his uh, 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 sainthood uh, here because of the path he has taken as an undergraduate at Princeton, including a Rhodes Scholar working at Chicago uh, Law an ample career. 
uh, in teaching of the law. The real reason that uh, Dr. Ice Gruber is here today is reported by Kristen Tout, uh, uh, Kirsten Tout of the Daily Princetonian, a sewer odor mistaken for gas leak at the Uh-oh. Frisk Campus Center. Uh, a suspected gas leak at Frisk Campus Center was really a smelly sewer drain, and the president said, I'm getting out of Dodge. So he came uh, to Dodge. It's never a dull moment on campus, is it? Tom, uh, no, it's not. It's uh, it's always exciting whether I'm on campus or off campus, and it's a pleasure to be here with you on How the program. How much time do you spend raising money versus talking to undergraduates to motivate them forward? Yeah, you know, I'm on the road about 60 days a year. Some of that's yeah. talking to alumni. Some of that's uh, fundraising. Some of it's the kind of outreach we're doing now. Mm-hmm. When I'm on the campus, which is the great majority of the time, a lot of it's talking with our uh, undergraduates or supporting what they're doing and what our faculty right. are doing. I want to go to our theme today, which is the can't out right now that you don't need to go to college. Peter Thiel greatly associated. Let me bring this in and have my colleague David Gura uh, jump on it. Mr. Thiel would suggest for many students, college is a waste of time. I have trouble with that. They don't care what I think. Please address that that topic. For any student who can get a four-year degree, a college degree, a four-year college degree is going to be almost certainly the best investment that they make or that their parents make in their lifetime. So this is a uh, financial news uh, network. Uh, the uh, compounding return on a college degree, and we're talking now any four-year college degree, is estimated to be somewhere between around 7.5%. That's at the low end of the spectrum to 15%. For most students, that's going to be the best investment of their lifetime, and that's taking into account the tuition payments that they make, the room and board that they make, and the foregone earnings. And that's looking only at the economic value. So there may be some kids for whom it's not a good idea to go to college, but in general, that's the wrong advice to give somebody. Who is not going to Princeton who you'd like to see go to Princeton? I'm not talking about David Gurra here who couldn't hack it, but uh, you've got a, a lot of people who want to go there. Uh, they're applying. They're getting in. What what part of the population is, is not applying even and doesn't know to, to apply to Princeton? How are you going to get them to apply? Yeah, you know, our, our, one of our major efforts over the last uh, a decade or so has been to increase the socioeconomic diversity at uh, Princeton. I'm very pleased that uh, we have a 21% Pell-eligible population on the campus. Those are students eligible for federal Pell grants going to the least well-off students. That's triple what it was about a decade uh, ago. So we want to see more socioeconomic diversity, and uh, we also want to see geographic diversity. You've got your, your colleague at Yale talking about expanding that campus uh, there are so many students who want to go. They're going to build two colleges, I believe, two new colleges. How much do you think about the size of Princeton and preserving that? Mm, great and how question. do you balance that with the need uh, to educate more and more people who want to go to college? Yeah, David, I, I actually think it is imperative that we expand as well. Princeton uh, expanded over the uh, last decade or so. We began an expansion in 2001. Uh, added 125 students to uh, each class, so 500 to the overall undergraduate student body. Our board of trustees last year, with my enthusiastic endorsement and support, announced that we too would build an additional residential college once again and expand the number of spaces. But even that's not going to meet the demand um, for uh, high-quality education in the United States. Uh, And I'm very glad to see Yale and Stanford both expanding right now, too. You were a a pioneer. Princeton was a pioneer in offering need-based aid, need-blind aid, uh, making it so that you could go to Princeton, not pay a dime uh, if you fit into a certain uh, demographic. Are you surprised that that hasn't been replicated more? There's a lot of talk of the size of endowments at a number of colleges in the the U.S. Why hasn't that been replicated more, do you think? 
Well, I, I actually think, David, that uh, while we're very proud to have been the pioneers on that, uh, we did see people uh, follow us over the last uh, decade or so. Um, what you rightly say is that Princeton went to a financial aid policy that was all grants so that uh, nobody is required to take out a loan, and we don't consider home equity in determining student need. And the consequence of that mm-hmm. is that at Princeton now, 60%, 60% of the student body is on financial aid, and the average scholarship is roughly equal to the tuition price. So 80% of our students mm-hmm. are graduating with zero debt. 20% or so take out uh, a loan voluntarily, and they end up graduating with a median mm-hmm. debt of under $6,000. I would suggest many parents of many different schools would look at you and go, you've got rocks in your head because most other schools uh, don't have such a program. Why are you looking at me like that, Rachel? Oh, personal experience. <laughs> David, I want to point out that the Princeton women's hockey team tied Big Red Hockey. Here, let me finish up. Two to two. Let me, let me finish up here with the most important question. How do you retain faculty like John McPhee. How do you retain faculty in this day of price war for stars within the faculty? How do you do it? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question because uh, one of the things that I and uh, my dean of the faculty, Debbie Prentice, worry about on a daily uh, basis is literally how to make daily, sure. Agreed. Li- literally daily, right? That is what we, there are. Uh, we've got a terrific faculty, and that means that when other places are looking at whom would they like to lure exactly. away, they're going to look at Princeton University and a and a few of our peers. And some of that means making sure that we pay competitive compensation packages. Even more important, I would say, is uh, making sure that we are providing the research support that our faculty needs so that they're able to do what they need to do in order to produce great scholarship, or in the case of someone like John McPhee, great writing and be feel supported in the classroom. And then we need community. That, uh, makes the community them, that keeps it together. Keeps it together. Christopher Eisgerber, he is the prince, uh, president of Princeton. in New York. I'm Tom Keenan Davos. And joining us now at these meetings of the World Economic Forum is Nicholas Stern. That is, without question, a name of debate within the environment, within our climate. But far more than that is his contribution to economics and, of course, his work for many years at the London School of Economics. Lord Stern, thank you so much uh, for coming by this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Tom. You gave a panel here which made immediate headlines, and the tinge of this is an adapting climate policy in Washington. The world can cut emissions 20% and double gross domestic product in 20 years, says Nicholas Stern. If you were to say that to President Trump, how would you follow up to convince him that we could double GDP in 20 years? I'd say how you do it, but I'd also put in front of that that this is the growth story. This is about strong, sustainable infrastructure investment, and President Trump's in favor of infrastructure investment, and we assume that he means uh, modern, clean, and smart infrastructure. That boosts your output over these next five years or so. You trigger a tremendous wave of innovation and discovery, much of it on the way, but it could go much faster. And that will take you through 20 years of uh, strong growth. And it will be cleaner and quieter and safer, and we'll have cities where you can move and breathe. And how do you do it? Well, it's renewable sources of power, strong dose of uh, energy efficiency. We can do much better. 
you expand your electrical system so much more the transport is electrical runoff of course uh, clean electricity you move some coal uh, most of your coal to gas right. and you're much more careful with your forests that's how you do it you have enjoyed with a stern report of years ago very large criticism that it was much more of a political document than an environmental or science document. How do you update that and respond today, not to climate deniers, but people that just go, wait a minute, I sort of like the internal combustion engine and it's working for me right now. How do you respond to that group of people? Well, first and foremost, the Stern Review was uh, 10 years ago and I think it's absolutely stood the test of time. In fact, the science there uh, that we reported on uh, if you look how that's changed over 10 years, it looks still more worrying. Mm -hmm. Most of the effects that we were talking about have come through faster than we anticipated. So I underplayed the costs of uh, inaction and technical progress has been faster than we anticipate, anticipated. So I underplayed the costs of action. So the costs of inaction were higher and the costs of action, in a sense, are much lower because so much more is possible so absolutely i think it stood uh, the test of time if you're wedded to the internal combustion engine well the great engineering forces much of them in the united states have made enormous progress with electricity and electric engines are much more efficient mm -hmm. than the internal combustion let engine let me bring in my colleague in uh, new york david Gurr. david yeah, Lord Stern, i was lending an ear to the to the confirmation hearings in washington yesterday and scott pruitt who's up to be the head of the environmental protection agency was testifying and we can uh, we can talk about his politics but let's just talk about a broader theme he introduced he said we must reject as a nation the false paradigm that if you're pro-energy you're anti-environment and if you're pro-environment you're anti-energy let's take a step back using that as a as a jumping off point here how are you going to get people who uh, aren't interested in climate change, aren't interested in caring about climate change, maybe don't believe in climate change, to care about it, to believe in it. How do you, how do you bridge that disconnect? Well, I, I think Mr. Pruitt is right in that we have to break the relationship between energy and output on the one hand and things damaging from the environment on the other. And we know how to do it. We know how to do things in much more efficient, uh, cleaner ways. So I really think we can overcome that in a very uh, direct way because these things are so attractive. They give you cities where you can move and breathe. Mm. And in the United Kingdom, we kill 20, more, 20 times through air pollution than we do from road accidents. This is a story which is much more attractive. So if you want to see your economy more productive, if you want to see your cities better places, use your energy, organize your transport in different ways, and then you break that relationship. So in a sense, um, Mr. Pruitt is asking the right questions. When we talk about trade, we see the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership fall to the wayside, uh, and we wonder what role China is going to play in multilateral trade going forward. How about in the climate space? Uh, it was a big deal when China came on board with that climate accord. Is China taking a leadership role going forward here? Do you anticipate that they're going to continue leading when it comes to climate change, or was that a one-off? Oh, China has been... I've been working in China for um, uh, 30 years now, and uh, the way China has moved in the last five or six years is quite remarkable. Coal peaked in China about two years ago. At the end of last year, 2016, China put on hold 100 gigawatts of um, 
coal-fired power station construction plans, some of which had already begun. They're investing enormously in renewables. They're taking energy efficiency very seriously. They worry deeply about pollution and congestion in their cities. And they actually have got quite good at producing the products which give you this more efficient, uh, uh, cleaner uh, world. So the Chinese commitment, because they see the problems of their cities, because they see the problems of climate change and know they're very big, and because they see the attractions and making the new goods that people are going to use in this new economy, their commitment is long-term and serious, and it uh, gets still stronger. Lord Stern, you had the privilege of studying with Merlis. I've heard a number of pronunciations, James Merlis of Scotland, a long, long time ago. He owns the modern study of incentives. How do we incentivize people in policy to do what you and others are talking about? There seems to be a massive reluctance to use intelligent incentives to change behavior. How do we do that? If you will excuse compliments to the interviewer, that's yeah. the first time that my PhD supervisor has been put to me in an interview. Well, that's what we do with surveillance. And he's one of my heroes. He is With a march of sin, and it was a moment. He was, Cambridge. he was absolutely uh, terrific in his work on incentives. I w was working with him at the time that he was doing that work, which got him the Nobel Prize. The incentives are at the heart of this thing. And I was with Amartya Sen on Monday night at the LSE, where we were talking about um, democracy and uh, responsiveness and public discussion and persuasion. So those two things are part of my answer, Tom. The first thing is to get incentives right. There are various things you can do. Carbon pricing is important. At the moment, people emit and damage their children's future and their grandchildren's future through greenhouse gases. They right. do it mostly for free. And we need good incentives so that markets work. So carbon price is one okay. story. But regulation is also a very important too. We need to continue this discussion in London. Lord Stern, thank you so much. Nicholas Stern, Nick Stern, uh, at the London School of Economics. David Gurr in New York, I'm Tom Keenan Davos, and now joining us is a woman with one of the most storied careers in economics. Of course, her work with Kenneth Rogoff this time is different as what people talk about. What they don't talk about is he showed up from Havana, Cuba with three suitcases a few uh, years ago, went to a two-year school in Florida and moved on without blinking an eye to the top levels of American economics. Carmen Reinhardt. Carmen, your expertise is a dollar. It's front and center. I've never heard a president-elect or a president say we want a weak dollar. How will Trump's strong dollar policy be unique and original? Well, uh, uh, President-elect uh, Trump has uh, made it very much a point that he wants to restore U.S. manufacturing. At the same time, uh, the dollar has been strengthening steadily, and we're reaching a point where one may wonder uh, given the prospects of uh, interest rate hikes, uh, how long uh, before it elicits a reaction? And by a reaction, I mean possibly something we haven't seen in years, uh, uh, intervention in the foreign exchange markets.
David? This is a president-elect who, for better or worse, uh, wants to see immediate results. And, of course, he did mention the dollar uh, in a tweet earlier this week, as, as Tom mentioned. How much power, a basic question here, but how much power does a president have to influence the strength of the dollar? We, we understand the, do- the dollar, any exchange rate, is difficult to predict and even more uh, difficult possibly to control. But what uh, is driving this dollar strength uh, is a double whammy. It is the widening in spreads owing from changes in monetary policy, uh, the U.S. tight tightening at a much faster clip uh, than any other major uh, central bank, and number two, expectations of a rebound in U.S. economy. So what control can a president have? Look, uh, as I said, the U.S. has been a committed floating uh, exchange rate country since the Bretton Woods system broke down in the early 70s. However, when it has felt that the dollar has uh, gotten far out of uh, control or far out of alignment, um, intervention has been a tool. And it the tool is widely debated uh, among academics and policymakers whether it's effective or not, but it's a signaling device. That's about all you can say. It signals uh, that maybe we're willing to do more uh, on whatever margins we have uh, to turn it around. Tom will often invoke the the Plaza Accord uh, on this program, and I wonder if you think that we're headed for something like that, a a new Plaza Accord. What's different, very different this time, is the Plaza Accord was all about policy coordination. The U.S. didn't go at it alone. Alongside uh, uh, cooperating was Japan and Germany. Now, I would argue and have argued that the conditions for that kind of cooperation today are just not there. Uh, In the case of Japan, uh, Abenomics is very much entwined with trying to weaken the yen and get inflation expectations up and try to move Japan out of deflation. So uh, an agreement of of a stronger yen doesn't seem plausible. Now, we could turn to Germany and say, look, Germany is recording record or near record surpluses in its current account, so it could be poised Mm -hmm. uh, to tolerate a stronger currency. However, the Bundesbank is no longer what's in control here. And and the ECB, worried about still a very fragile uh, periphery Europe, can't can't commit. What is your belief in stability or instability right now? And I say this totally different than I would have 180 days ago, and that my theme today is there is an uncertainty within the uncertainty here at Davos. If I've got that level of uncertainty and first derivatives of uncertainty, do you believe we're in a stable environment or are there just some significant instabilities out there? I think there's – Tom, I, I 
couldn't agree with you more. Uncertainty has been, I think, the theme that I have taken away from, from, from this uh, World Economic Forum because you could have potentially, potentially, uh, a fairly favorable environment in which the uh, rhetoric on protectionism doesn't quite materialize in its most negative form. The U.S. Uh, has a, a growth boost and the economy, we're global economy, marches along and even picks up momentum. Um, then you could have a really extreme uh, on the other side in which uh, China and the U.S. Uh, confront and uh, this sends the protectionist whistles uh, around the mm -hmm. world and uh, trade, which as you know, is already never really recovered from the global financial crisis. I would point out that if you look at the couple of decades before the global financial crisis, world exports were growing at 6%. Since the crisis, they've been growing at 3%. Yeah. So it's already, you know, Brexit and the trade war, of course, are the, what brings the uh, possibility of the very worst right. outcome. That leaves you with yeah. uncertainty. David, jump in with one more question. Yeah, I can't help but look back on where we were last year around this time, especially with regard to the Chinese currency. And I wonder what your observations are at this point of how the Chinese government is handling uh, its currency right now here in 2017. I'm so glad you asked that because I mentioned Japan, I mentioned Germany. I did not mention the elephant in the room, which is, which is China. And um, the Chinese right now, uh, if, if you were to ask this question not a year ago, but three years ago, uh, when reserve accumulation was still the mode, the renminbi was on a path of strengthening, they had capital inflows, I would say they would have been poised to make agreements uh, to allow the renminbi mm -hmm. uh, perhaps to strengthen. But right now, what the People's Republic uh, Bank of China is doing is fighting a depreciation. If they haven't if they hadn't intervened as massively as they have, right, uh, we would have seen a depreciation. And so the capital flight that's going on there is not entirely well, in their control. Uh, a story to continue. Carmen Reinhardt, thank you so much, of course, for the Kennedy School at Harvard. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.